Roger that, Houston. All systems five by five. But what if there is no tomorrow? There wasn't one today. Welcome to the Nerdfest podcast. Today we've got Dan Watkins, Ian Mayer, Peter Johnson, John Farthing, and I'm Hazel Burton. Oh, you did it! We didn't even practice it! <laughs> First time ever. Amazing. 65 goals. <laughs> uh, on our show today, we've got our film buff or film bluff quiz. And we've also been sent in a question by one of our listeners asking us just how wrong we are. So let's get started. Dan, do you like my book? Oh, it's a Hamilton notebook. It's very nice. There's a million things I haven't done, but just you wait. Just you wait. So is that a book or just a notebook with a cover? Uh, It's just a notebook with a cover with all of my various working notes. That's just the word Lin-Manuel Miranda with a heart around it on every single page. (laughs) I can see. (laughs) I would have liked you to have numbered the lines on the pages one to a million with all the things you haven't done. You assume I've got far too much time on my hands, which I, which to be fair, I do. <laughs> um, this, this is my notebook at the moment. It's got whales and seahorses and things on it from the National History Museum. Yeah, it's my ocean life notebook. I don't have money for it, but mine is a, a a shiny notebook that just says "All work and no play makes Jack a dull boy" over and over again. <laughs> <laughs> and Peter can't read or write, so. <laughs> <laughs> Did you know Hamilton's based on a true story? <gasps> What? <laughs> yeah, there no. actually was a there actually was a Hamilton. Don't give them an excuse to talk about it. <laughs> I I found out something about Hamilton that I didn't know. It's not based on Formula One. <laughs> no. Nor is it based on disgraced former Tories. That would have been a play. I think it was a fringe show, yeah. But not at the next fringe, because as we know, every show next year at the fringe is gonna be about COVID. Yeah. Yes. You know, it's better than Dead Dads, which was one year. Mm. And then mental health struggles one year. Brexit. And, you know, these are all important things, but I just remember going to the Fringe and, like, two weeks in, someone would say the dad had died and I would just go and like, yeah, you and every fucking else has got a show on. <laughs> you always had a nice line in sympathy. Yes. Well, I was sympathetic to them in real life, but, you know. So there'd be some some comedian on stage saying, and uh, a couple of months ago my dad died and you'd just stand up and walk out. Ah, <laughs> uh, the Fringe. Ah, uh, yes. How we miss parts of you. <laughs> Bluffs? Yes. Yes. Yeah. Okay. So now it's time for our film buff or film bluff quiz. This is where we have all come prepared with three facts, but we have deviously made one of those facts up. So we have to try and guess which one is the bluff. Um, who would like to go first? I would like to go first. Uh, I think you probably won't have that much difficulty with mine. Okay. Um, see, Dan put his hand up first and then oh, Dan. you audibly yeah. said it. Yeah. So, yeah. you know, Sorry, Dan. Dan was polite, but as you've yeah. just, as you've just yeah. ascertained, if you kick off, you get what you want first. <laughs> yeah. You go first, John. I'm going to bring you down a bit. I'm going to talk about death. So, sadly, throughout the years when making films, actors tend to die mid-film. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then they have to work around them to finish them. Obviously, from the Crow onwards and Gladiator, they've done this with CGI and so on. But if you have a lower-budget film, or a film that predates CGI, you possibly had to be a little bit more creative to finish the film when your lead actor uh, pegged it, for want of a better word. 
So these are free yes, films. Yes, please come up with a better word. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Carctic. <laughs> One fringe festival with surplus dead dads and you're the most blase about death human being I've ever encountered. Uh, yeah, peg is a word that's taken on a different meaning recently, isn't it? <laughs> uh, so these are three films where the lead actor Carctic joined production and how they finished the film. Lovely. <laughs> Number one is the film Plan 9 from Outer Space. Bella Lugosi died midway and was replaced at short notice by the director's dentist, who stood with a Dracula cloak over his face and making noises, hoping nobody noticed he was not in fact the real Bela Lugosi. As well as looking nothing like Bela Lugosi, he was a foot taller. <laughs> fact number two is the film Hardest Impact. Oh God! Hardest Impact was a 1990s thriller which was the 1990s thriller, which was the first straight role of Vicky Lavon, who was a famous porn star who transitioned into straight acting. But she actually died when she still had several scenes to film. In at least one of those scenes, her place is taken by a realistic-looking sex doll that she had previously marketed to her followers on her website. <laughs> okay. Oh, dear. And, and finally, factor number three is the film Game of Death, the film Bruce Lee was making as a follow-up to his mainstream success, Enter the Dragon. Bruce died part way through Game of Death, and again, a, a variety of techniques were used to complete the film in Bruce's absence, including one dialogue scene, which involves a, another actor with a cardboard cutout of Bruce Lee's face stuck over his own, while he stands there and nods and speaks with his mouth not moving. Those are your three facts. <laughs> well, John, I don't know, and I don't want to know. <laughs> I suspect I do know, uh, yeah. but let's talk about it anyway. I haven't seen Plan 9 from Outer Space. I have. Mm -hmm. It's terrible. But I have seen Ed Wood. Yes. Yes. The story was famously documented in that film. Yeah. 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 So is it terrible but worth watching, Peter, or is it terrible and should just be avoided? It depends how much of a masochist you are. <laughs> It's just terrible. As somebody who likes kind of messy films, it's just dull. But it's it's made with a kind of love. Mm. But it, it's kind of got a humanity and a niceness to it that a lot of them don't. But it's just a terrible, terrible film. Uh, hardest Impact? <laughs> the Hardest Impact, yes. Um, the lesser-known sequel to Deep Impact, presumably. <laughs> I don't know if it was a, like a straight-to-video rip-off of that, but my understanding is it's more like just like a die-hard type thing. Have you seen this film, John? I have, yeah. I've seen it. It's on Amazon Prime. And there's two or three scenes where it's very, very clearly a sex doll. Not, it's not like a sex scene. It's like a scene where she's stood next to the lead actor and she's just not moving. And they've just like thrown a biker jacket on. <laughs> See, I was so convinced that was the bluff, but John has offered several details there. That mm. make it sound a tiny <laughs> mm. bit more convincing. No, I'm I'm um, picking his lies because at first he says, um, "For what I understand," and then he says, um, "So yeah, I have seen it, and she wears a biker jacket." So, yeah, I, I, <laughs> okay. <laughs> There's just lie after lie after lie in there. <laughs> but for that to be false, the Bruce Lee one would have to be true. I know they intercut. I say I know. I I, I my memory is failing me, but I believe mm. they intercut footage of a different film into that as well to extend it there's a lot of bruce lee films made after he died where they've got whatever scrap of bruce lee footage 
Mm. They could. So um, there's ones where Bruce Lee appears at the beginning and then he's killed. And the rest of the film is getting revenge on the character's demise. So Bruce Lee appears in the first couple of minutes and then it cuts to the character's funeral, which is actually just Bruce Lee's funeral that they've got some news footage of and spliced in there. And they all say things like Bruce Lee, mm. but spelled L-I. And... So this uh, this paper mask, how did, how did that work? Was the shot from behind or in front? It was from behind, but you see his face. He, he's sat looking into a mirror. I think this is how they tried to disguise it. Right. So it's an over-the-shoulder shot into a mirror, and the mirror just has a cardboard cut out of Bruce Lee's face. Based on that, I, I've got to go with Hardest Impact. Me too. Yeah. <laughs> I've got to go with Hardest Impact on the title alone before we go to any other details. <laughs> does, does sound like John. Yes, same here. Oh, I'm afraid that you are all... Correct, yes. Yeah. <laughs> uh, a porn star did not die halfway through making Harley's Impact and be replaced by her own sex doll for the remaining scenes. Yeah. I can't believe none of us thought to ask how she died, because <laughs> I bet John had a story prepared for that. <laughs> she mysteriously choked to death. John, no. Yeah, no. <laughs> I stand by my first answer. <laughs> Can, can someone else please go next, please? <laughs> Thank you for nobody asking me the name of the actress that I made up as I said it and then immediately <laughs> forgot. <laughs> so one of my very, very favourite films is turning 20 this year, and that's Cameron Crowe's Almost Famous. So I've prepared three facts about Almost Famous, which I've got from the new Origins podcast series about the making of the film which is an oral history with the cast and the crew reunited. Very, very good if you enjoy the film as much as I did. So Ooh, that sounds good. I'll give that a try. Never seen it. You must see it, Hazel. It is excellent. Oh, yeah, Hazel. It's great. Mm. Yeah. All right. That's four thumbs up. Mm. Yeah. Okay. Uh, fact number one. Russell, the lead guitarist played in the finished film by Billy Crudup, was originally cast to be played by Brad Pitt. Sorry, can you say that again just to get the crud up? Yep, I'm pronouncing it the way he pronounces it. But really, okay, if okay, I, I can pronounce it the way you want it pronounced, um, I defer to that. I'm just just trying to save you embarrassment if it was wrong. No, I've listened to six hours of him and everyone else he worked with saying it like that. So okay, I fine. am right. That doesn't mean that they're all wrong and Peter's right though necessarily. <laughs> I mean, it could be. Yeah, just because it's his own name doesn't mean that yeah. he's pronouncing it correctly. Get on with it. <laughs> Fact number one, Russell, the lead guitarist played in the finished film by Billy Crudup, was originally cast to be played by Brad Pitt. I think you find it's Brad Pat. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Fact number two, before shooting, the cast went to rock school, where they were taught by Mick Jagger and Keith Richards. And fact number three, the film was almost called Untitled, because it was Cameron Crowe's fourth film as a director, and Led Zeppelin had famously left their fourth album untitled. Isn't fact number two a Simpsons episode? <laughs> Homer goes to rock and roll fantasy camp. Yes. And uh, yeah, Jagger and Richards are there. Tom Petty's there. I think Elvis Costello and Lenny Kravitz turn up. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, this, this, this is silly me that's a bluff, because did that episode come out before or after Almost Famous? Ooh. I want to say that's fairly recent, but the last 20 years of The Simpsons are all fairly recent mm-hmm. to me. <laughs> it's post-2000, certainly. Yeah. So it's post-almost-famous. 
Having never seen the film, is the role that Brad Pitt was potentially up for one that he would be suited for? Lead guitarist of a rock band in the 70s? Mm, yeah. Mentor figure to the protagonist? I would say so. To 2000, he's just coming out of Fight Club and mm-hmm. he's getting into more edgier roles. Mm. I know there was a famous actor that was supposed to play that part, but I can't remember who it was. In the back of my mind, I've got Tom Cruise but that might be me just conflating it with Rock of Ages for some reason in my yeah. head. Mm. Or uh, Interview with a Vampire, which has Tom Cruise on. And Pitt. I saw about 10 minutes of that last night. I turned the TV on, an interview with a vampire. Well, that's a terrible film, isn't it? <laughs> oh, that's not that's <laughs> not the, dated well. There's a lot of acting in that yeah, film. Yeah, it's the acting yeah. activist thing I think I've ever seen. Last time I saw it, I really enjoyed it. <laughs> like it, it's definitely heightened, but it's it's throughout. You know, it's like it's beautiful. It's really painterly. There's there's loads of kind of yeah. you know um, turning the volume up. It is very influential. I wrote my dissertation about vampires in literature, which has recently become an episode of the "You're Dead to Me" podcast, which would have been really handy mm-hmm. when I was at uni. But all of the books, all of the academic articles about the history of vampire figures in literature they all talk about Lestat and they all talk about Interview with the Vampire so Mm. it had quite an important legacy in terms of that genre of horror and romance fiction as well Mm -hmm. because he was followed by the likes of Angel and Buffy and Edward and Twilight and that original 200 year old Lord Byron-ish vampire figure had gone out of fashion because of Dracula and Nosferatu and things like that. But Interview with a Vampire rejuvenated the idea of a vampire as something romantic and brooding and haunted rather than just a scary devil who will eat you. And Lestat was a rock singer later on yeah. in the later novels. Ah. Hmm. That might work then. Mm. Anyway, vampire side note. I'm going to double down on this. I think it's a great film. Like I, I'm thinking back over it. I think it's fantastic. I think it looks beautiful. I think the lead's go for it. Tom Cruise is amazingly un-Tom Cruise in it. It was the first time I think I saw Brad Pitt actually acting. I was, I, I think it's a, mm. I think this is a solid nerd touchdown. I may have tuned into a particularly histrionic moment. Currently streaming on iPlayer. Yes. For those who haven't seen it. Anyway, back, mm-hmm. getting back to all, hey, all famous famous, yeah. <laughs> Could you remind us of the third bluff? Yes. The third fact is the film was almost called Untitled because it was Cameron Crowe's fourth film as a director, and Led Zeppelin had famously left their fourth album untitled. No. For me, it's between that and the, the, the Simpson episode. <laughs> now, my DVD is the director's cut, and I'm sure it's called Untitled. Um, whether it's on the case or on the film, I'm sure it's like untitled, almost famous, the boot, the bootleg right. cut or something like that, or the director's cut. So there's like a nod to it, but yeah. it might not have almost been called that. Mm-hmm. The director might want to call it that. Other people might have said that's a terrible thing to call <laughs> yeah, a movie. Yeah, that's stupid. Yeah. <laughs> I know it was written as Stillwater. Like I've seen, a, I've yes, seen an outline of it that was written name. as Stillwater. Yeah. yeah. They're all very credible, Dan. Mm-hmm. I can see Brad Pitt in that role around that time. I think I'll have to go with the middle one because it's it's a sitcom premise, <laughs> basically. Mm-hmm. But that could be what it was based on. The sort of music that they talk about in the film, you know, it's more Zeppelin than the Stones, isn't it? So I couldn't I couldn't imagine they would get the actors 
It's quite likely they couldn't get Zeppelin to do it, though. But, yeah, the the band in the film are not particularly Stones-like. Mm. Mm, there's no one Mick Jaggering about, yeah. I recall. It's um, Jason Lee, isn't it, the singer? Yeah, and he was based on, or either him or Russell were based on Glenn Frey, Glenn Frey from the from Eagles. The Eagles. Mm-hmm. And the band themselves had a little bit of Almond Brothers, a little bit of Steely Dan, yeah. that sort of genre. I'm going to pick the, the middle one, for sure, as the bluff. I'm going to pick the middle one also as the bluff. I'm going to uh, step away from the crowd and choose the untitled one as the bluff. I think the middle one's the bluff, because I think it's silly, oh. <laughs> basically. <Yeah. laughs> well, I can reveal that Hazel is wrong. Oh. Uh, <laughs> the, the middle one was a Simpsons episode, <laughs> uh, as John said. <laughs> Um, the cast did go to rock school before shooting started, but it was Peter Frampton and Nancy Wilson from Heart who taught them. Isn't Nancy Wilson from Heart married to the director? Yes. She was. Uh, and they uh, divorced in 2010, but reunited remotely for this podcast series. Oh, bless. And Peter is exactly right about the film's title. Cameron Crowe did want to call it Untitled, and other people told him it was a stupid mm-hmm. idea. The studio said, <laughs> we're not going to call it that. Come up with another name. Um, which means that Brad Pitt was originally going to be Russell. He spent three or four months preparing for it. He met Patrick Fugit, who played William. Uh, they bonded about music and video games and things like that. And then he just decided he wasn't going to do it. Mm-hmm. And they had to find someone else. As a bonus question for John, do you know what film beat Almost Famous at the box office when it was released in America? Okay, so what year were we talking about? 2000? It was, I believe, September 2000. It wasn't Freddy vs. Jason, was it? It wasn't, but it was a horror film. It was a reissue of The Exorcist. Really? Yeah, I think it was advertised as the version you've never seen yeah, in cinemas. The one with the spider walk. Yeah, so in 2000, Almost Famous was beaten at the box office by a film made and released in the year that it's set. Nineteen seventy four. So was it not so, a, was it not a particularly successful film at the box office then? No, uh, according to the podcast, uh, Cameron Crowe says he got a call after the first weekend saying, Yeah, it's a flop. Oh. Mm-hmm. Uh but it is one of these ones that started to pick up a bit of word of mouth steam. Mm-hmm. It got a few Oscar nominations. I think it won one for screenplay and it's just had a bit of a long-lasting effect, even if it didn't hit in cinemas. All right, who's next? So my buffs and bluffs are around science fiction TV shows, and specifically the first science fiction TV show in particular regions. So the first German science fiction TV show was, in English, it's called Space Patrol Orion. It's called Die Fantastischen Abenteuer der Raumschaff Orion in German. (laughs) <laughs> it was first broadcast in 1966 on ARD, which is a West German uh, broadcaster, which is like ITV, but in Germany, and it lasted for seven one-hour episodes. Space Patrol Orion protects Earth from an alien race called Frogs. So that is the first German science fiction TV show. Bluff. <laughs> the first American science fiction TV show was called Captain Video and his Video Rangers. It aired on the DeMont television network in 1949 to 1955. And it had a spin-off show on Saturdays called The Secret Files of Captain Video. It employed numerous science fiction writers, like famous ones. Uh, Arthur C. Clarke and Asimov both wrote episodes. And it ran over 1,500 episodes. And it also had a movie in the 50s. 
And the final one is the first Japanese science fiction TV show, which is called Dan Oji, which translates to Prince Dan. This was first broadcast in 1952 on TBS, the Tokyo Broadcasting System. And it's an adaptation of a manga by Azama Tetsuka, who famously went on to create Astro Boy, but he, he's created like dozens of mangas. Now, this is the first, I'll try and pronounce this right, tokusatsu, which is the TV and film tradition of using special effects in Japan. Now, Prince Dan is inspired by Flash Gordon and other American serials. It looks like almost like the Lone Ranger, if you look at clips from it. Prince Dan is an athletics champion who, along with his uncle, a scientist called Dr. Isho, is transported to Moon X during an experiment gone wrong, where they find themselves surrounded by warring villages and things like Hawkmen appear in it. It looks a lot like Flash Gordon. So which is the bluff? We'll deal with what is going to be my new name of Prince Dan later. (laughs) (laughs) Were the villains in that German one called frogs or were they called the German word for frogs? They were called frogs in English, but it's an acronym in German Okay. to describe them. Oh, I have no idea on these. Yeah, the American ones. Was video a thing? Video just meant TV at that point. Mm. And obviously it was on TV, so... For 1,500 episodes, in fact. Yeah, over 1,500. They were nearly all lost because Dumont's archive was... uh, All the prints were stripped for um, silver, like so it was largely destroyed. How convenient... Yes. (laughs) There's a film as well. There was a film in the 50s. I think I've heard of the name, Captain Video. Whether it's that or not, I don't know. But I can believe that. I think there's an 80s cartoon called Captain Video or something. There was Michael Jackson's Captain EO. That's possibly what I'm thinking (laughs) of. It seems odd that something lasted 1,500 episodes and I've never heard of it. Would he inflict upon himself things where he had to pronounce both German and Japanese words? Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) That's kind of pointing to an American one as being the easy option. Well, I like the fact that I am a prince in Japan. So for that reason, I am going to go with the German one. Uh, Did we have dates for the German one, Ian? Yeah, the German one was first broadcast in 1966. Aha. So we've said German and not West German or East German. Therefore, that is a bluff. I was about to say that. I did actually say West Germany because I said ARD, which is the West German broadcast like ITV was in the UK. Mm. Because it's a set of broadcasters that link together. They will have just lost the Football World Cup to England in 1966 and needed cheering up. What's better than a sci-fi series? (laughs) (laughs) That's my logic for that one. (laughs) I'm going to go for Captain Video and the Video Rangers as the bluff. I'm going to go for Prince Dan because I think... Ian encounters enough Japanese with the video game that he can bluff it if necessary mm-hmm. for the question. <laughs> yeah, um, I, don't, I think Prince Dan is not real. Sorry, real Dan. Oh. So well. it means it, the title is up for the taking. Yeah, okay. <laughs> I'm going st- to stick with the frogs, the German frogs. Patrol Orion is true. Oh. You can find episodes of it on uh, YouTube. It has a massive cult following. There's like 150 novels and novellas about it it has a real uh, a real cult following so number two captain video and his video rangers that is also true now i'd never heard of this either but it's um uses a lot of military surplus costumes with like lightning strikes on them tons of actors work for it because it went on for so, uh, so long ernest borgnine played an early film role which means the bluff was dan oji or prince dan which mm. i completely made up <laughs> um there is no single part of that work that is true other than Osama Tetsuka 
was a prolific manga creator who did create Astro Boy. So congratulations, all who got that right. I will await my elevation to Prince <laughs> And Prince Dan is called Prince Dan because of you, Dan. <laughs> Thank you. So kind. Uh, I have one about sci-fi TV as well. This is about Star Trek. Ooh. Number one. The Vulcan hand gesture, which is like a flat palm with the fingers spread in a V, is actually a terrible insult in Arabic culture. And the TV show has never been shown on state TV in many Arabic countries. Mm. The second one. Leon Theremin, who gave his name to the spooky early synth that you hear on the Star Trek theme tune. He designed a passive device for the Russians to place in a wooden seal they presented to the new US Embassy in Moscow so that they could eavesdrop on them. And number three, Dr. McCoy's catchphrase, I'm a doctor, not a bricklayer, and many variations of it, originated with a 1933 film called The Kennel Murder Case, starring William Powell and Mary Astor. So they took the catchphrase from the 1930s and just lifted it wholesale into Star Trek? Essentially, they stole the gag, as far as I can tell. Hmm. I think I've heard the first one before, that it's um, a rude gesture in certain Arabic nations. Yeah. (laughs) Apparently, they edited it out of the first set of movies. I don't know what they did for the J.J. Abrams ones. Remind us again um, how you think the Russians spied. What was their method? Just because I'm trying to unpick it. Well, supposedly he invented a device which worked passively, so it wasn't always broadcasting, and you could make it activate by sending signal to it so that it would pick up the sounds in the room. And they thought by making a big wooden seal would be the sort of thing they would put in a prominent place in the office so it would be likely to overhear things. That makes sense because that's where I put my wooden seal. It's just behind me. <laughs> I was going to say that the American diplomats in Moscow surely would expect to be spied on and surely would check for spying devices. I'm told it's successfully spied on discussions in the embassy for nine years. Whoa. <laughs> you're, you're American. You like seal, yes? <laughs> Here is seal. Kiss from a rose. Do not insult me by not taking seal. Where is your seal? <laughs> so that's true. The Arabic hand gesture, I think, would they still use it? As it like in the sixties, if they found that it was offensive, maybe. But it's still used in like America discovery. was quite insular at that point. Um, how aware were they of Arabic culture? Yeah, but the point is that they're still using it now. So, like, if you watch Discovery, mm. New Spock still uses that. I don't know if it's still considered rude, but it was then. Mm. Don't try and dig yourself out of this, Peter. <laughs> I, I feel that there would be a, would have been more of an upcry had they continued to use it in the news shows cry. as they did. Is that a word? <laughs> and, Do you mean an outcry? No, I mean an upcry. An upcry is <laughs> where why where someone puts their hand up, you makes yeah. that gesture. Ah, that's an upcry. <laughs> I'm sticking with it. Cry is a word before bluff. <laughs> I, I would have gone with it's when you cry, but the tears go upwards instead of fall down your cheek. Yeah, it's in space, so there's no gravity, is there? So when they cry, <laughs> yeah, cry. I don't, it makes complete sense. I believe you can't cry in space on account of the whole vacuum thing. I read a review of Eva Green's new film in which she is an astronaut, and one of the things that it talks about during her training is that she will not be able to cry once she's in space. If she misses her child and things like that. Can't cry in space. Metaphor. <laughs> <Is> that- <laughs> yes, it is. Film's supposed to be quite good, though. 
I tried to prove you all wrong by googling upcry, so it was a word, <laughs> and Google says, did you mean outcry? Haven't talked much about the third one yet. The third one is the catchphrase of I'm a doctor, not a bricklayer, damn it. (gasps) Damn it in the thirties. No, the the damn it wasn't part of the catchphrase. That's when he does it. He he does Damn it, Jim, I'm a doctor, not a bricklayer, or whatever the thing is. Yeah. Yeah. But it Mm. you say it was taken from a, a film? It is, yes. A 1933 film called The Kennel Murder Case. Does the film have any other connection to Star Trek? Was Man no. Who Played McCoy in the film or anything? No, it was said by a doctor, obviously. Yeah. <laughs> Otherwise it wouldn't work. But he, yeah, he had three similar quips, such as I'm a doctor, not a magician, and I'm a doctor, not a detective. Mm. I'm going to go with the hand gesture being the bluff, because I dearly want the other two to be true. <laughs> Particularly Theremin's passive seal. I, I think that's amazing. Yeah, I'm going to give our American cousins a little bit more credit and say that the second one is not true and they wouldn't have done such a foolish thing. I'm going for the hand gesture because I don't think Star Trek would have knowingly continued to insult the entire Arabic community over the last 50 years. And I am going to go with the embassy in Moscow as well. Also, could somebody remind me the name of the guy who played McCoy? Because I cannot remember it and it's driving me mad. DeForest Kelly. For- DeForest Kelly. Thank you very much, Peter. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> mm-hmm. Okay, so we've got our answers in. Um, Did you know he's responsible for the death of hundreds of chimpanzees? DeForest. What? Deforestation. Oh, God. <laughs> <laughs> oh, there's going to be an upcry about that. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so the catchphrase... That is actually true. It was in that 1933 film. Leon Theremin did actually invent a thing that went in the US Embassy. And it did spy on discussions for nine years. We don't know wow. what, what they actually learned from it, but it was definitely there. And the one I made up was the Vulcan hand gesture. The hand gesture represents the Hebrew letter Shin, which represents the word Shaddai, a name for God. Apparently Nimoy sneaked a peek at some clerics performing a ceremony when he was a child where they were doing that gesture when he wasn't supposed to look, and he then copied that with one hand for the show. Very good. Okay, um, are we all aware of who Alan Smithy is? Yes. Oh, he said yes. Yes. I love all his films. Yes, yes. I hate all his films. He's a bit patchy. A bit patchy, I find. No real consistency (laughs) between that. So for any of our listeners who who are not aware, um, Alan Smithy is a pseudonym that is used when directors want to disown their own film and not be credited as directing it. So I have for you uh, the plot of three films, two of which are accredited to Alan Smithy, one of which is still the director who kind of claims to still have directed it. Make sense? Yep. 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 Okay. So the first one is called Ghost Dad. Uh, it was released in 1990, and it stars Bill Cosby and Kimberly Russell. The plot is uh, a guy called Elliot Hopper, who's a widower with three children, is currently working on a deal. His late wife's illness was very expensive, and this deal could bring them out of the red. But he gets into a cab that the maniac driver crashes, and the next thing he realises is that he's floating around and landing in the lab of a scientist who studies the paranormal. If only this has happened to the real Bill Cosby. <laughs> Yeah, He asked the scientist to send him back so he can finish the deal and make sure his children will be taken care of when he's gone for good. 
That is Ghost Dad. Mm. The second film is called Catch Fire, and it also was released in 1990, and it stars Dennis Hopper, Jodie Foster, and Vincent Price. So the plot of this one is an artist, played by Jodie Foster, witnesses a mafia hit and calls the police. At the police station, she realises that the mafia has a man in the force, so she runs. Trailed by the police who need her testimony, and a hitman, played by Dennis Hopper, she goes to Mexico, where eventually she meets the hitman, who has become infatuated with her after studying her art and prepares for the hit. Okay. After studying her art? <laughs> her art. <laughs> and the third film is called Woman Wanted, released in 1999. This is a story of a woman played by Holly Hunter who comes to work as a housekeeper for a widower and his grown son, played by Keith Sutherland. And I can't read my own words here. <laughs> but then what happened what happened yeah. to the widow <laughs> no, they, they both grow attached to her um, and she's asked by the father um, to, to marry him to the dismay of the son who also loves her the animosity of the two men towards each other is finally resolved when she becomes intentionally pregnant possibly by one or the other as she goes to bed with both men within a matter of days causing neither to win her for himself but both to become bound together because of the child so <laughs> this is the nineties Channel Four sitcom My Two Dads. Yeah, I know which one I don't want to see. They're all real films. Two of them um, are, have been credited as Alan Smithy as a director. One of them um, is still the director who originally directed it. Do we know why the directors might have disowned them, other than they were just bad? Um, so the director of Catch Fire, the middle one, in nineteen ninety. The studio um, were very, very unhappy with the version that the director produced, so they re-edited it without their permission, which then caused the director to say, okay, well, the, the credit has to go to Alan Smithy then. The director then tried to sue the studio, but the studio had already gone bankrupt, so he later released his own version. Mm-hmm. Woman Wanted, it was a sort of a passion project for them, but it sort of all kind of fell apart on set, and... Uh, they kind of fell out of love with it uh, as a result um, and just didn't want anything to do with it in the end. And Ghost Dad. Uh, no, I don't have any information on that one um, other than um, was credited to Alan Smithy. Presumably because it wasn't very good. That's the only one of the three I've heard of. I'm going to go with Ghost Dad as being the one that retains direct credit because it's the worst one to retain direct credit. <laughs> I get, I get the logic of that. Yeah. You know what I mean? It's not like their artistic vision could be crampled on the Bill Cosby vehicle ghost dad. Bill Cosby was a huge star in 1990, was he not? Was the Cosby show running then? Yeah. So I can't imagine anyone would disown such a high-profile film. Unless it was shit. It's, well, it's got yeah. really, really, really bad reviews. Um, I'm just reading a review from Roger Ebert. It's a desperately unfunny film. How does Bill Cosby, so capable in television, get himself into movie disaster zones like this movie? Mm. You know, they just don't get my vision for Ghost Dad. <laughs> the, the depth, <laughs> the subtext, the nuance. I think the director retained the credit for Ghost Dad because it is my theory that the director was, in fact, Bill Cosby himself. Okay. (laughs) I'm not going that far, but yeah, I'd go with Ghost Dad as well. Now, I've not heard of one of them, but I know two of them quite well. 
Of course, course you do, John. <laughs> I haven't seen it. Okay, so the middle one. Uh, Catch Fire. Or Backtrack, as it is also known. That was the re-release version. And the yeah. re-release version of Backtrack is actually a, a, a decent film that was sabotaged by the producers taking it away and recutting it. But it was also a very difficult shoot because Dennis Hopper and Jodie Foster really didn't get on. Yeah. And Alan Smithy, in this case, is Dennis Hopper, who was writing as well as directing. So the film was taken away from it. And it's the film that it's basically the second time where Dennis Hopper directed a film and it went terribly wrong and completely destroyed his career. So I do know that one. <laughs> and I know Ghost Dad just because it's the person that did direct it is directing below his station, should we say. He's a very well-respected director who was in the gutter for that movie for some reason, but I think was credited. Okay. You might as well tell us who you think it is, John. It was Sidney Poitier, I think, was the director of Ghost Dad. Okay. And I think he's credited. I don't think he. I don't think that's an Alan Smithy film. So Ghost Dad is the one that isn't an Alan Smithy film. Right. Hmm. I think everyone went for Ghost Dad. Is that right? Yeah. 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 And you, you were all correct. Yes. Hey. Sidney Poitier um, was like, no, I'm going to fall on my sword for this one. Um, but yeah, as, as John said, he got some stick for it, shall we say. Um Yes, so Catch Fire uh, was directed by Dennis Hopper. Um, a really, really tumultuous experience shooting that film, um, and the the film Backtrack, which I guess is a like <laughs> a fuck you to the studio as well, mm-hmm. was released uh, with an extra eighteen minutes added onto that. But the original um, Catch Fire is by Alan Smithy. Woman Wanted. That was starring Keitha Sutherland and also directed by Keitha Sutherland, but he just hated it and he disowned it. Uh, so that is by Ellen Smithy as well. Now, I tried to search for some reviews of Woman Wanted and mysteriously, they all led to 404 links. So I had to go to Amazon to find any sort of review. <laughs> um, and this is a user review by Donna G. Perry. My husband and I, in our late 60s, hated this movie. It's a sickening story. The elderly gentleman, described by some viewers of having tender feelings, was to me a self-centred old egotist. I could certainly understand why his wife lost her mind. The idea that a pretty and vibrant young woman would want to go to bed with an old man and continue to have a romantic and love relationship with him was unlikely and disgusting. For her to go to bed with the son later was totally out of her character to do so. Doesn't sound like a very appealing film. Does Alan Smithy still get used? Do people still put that credit on? He's too well known now. Too I think. well known. I believe it was 2003 was the last sort of use uh, of it. There was the movie called An Alan Smithy Movie, which probably helped to publicise yeah. it as well. Which was directed yeah. by Alan Smithy after Arthur Hiller took his name <laughs> off it. <laughs> uh, which he insists was not a publicity stunt, but. Well, the interesting thing about the three Hazelwood pictures, they're all ones where actors were directing. Mm hmm. I wonder if they're more likely to do it for some reason. Ego. Yeah, more egotistical. <laughs> Could be. So has anyone seen Burn, Hollywood Burn, an Alan Smithy film? Yes. concept of it is Eric Idle is a film director who makes a terrible film and wants to take his name off it, but his name actually is Alan Smithy, so he can't. <laughs> <laughs> so it's a, it's a nice concept, but a terrible film. Okay, so we've had a listener question from Andrew Miller, and he says... Hey, nerds. Long-time listener, first-time caller. John's review of Hereditary the other day made me think. 
Ian didn't like Hereditary, and Andy hated Thor Ragnarok. Do the rest of the gang have any opinions that are demonstrably wrong? And I feel the personal venom that's coming through from that one. (laughs) (laughs) So, should we interpret this as our own opinions that we know are demonstrably wrong, or are we accusing others of having demonstrably wrong? I think we're accusing others. We're accusing (laughs) others. That's all right then. Um, I don't have to defend my choices. He was looking for a fight. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm. Um, well, see, I don't want to pick on Andy because he's not here this episode, but he said multiple times on this podcast that there are only two good Star Wars films. Three. And I dispute that entirely. I would go so far as six that are demonstrably good. I could go higher, but I know that would be disputed. But there are definitely not only two. So let me get this straight. You're not only saying that he's wrong about Ragnarok, but also he's wrong about other things as well. And he's not here to defend himself. <laughs> yeah, I would extend his Ragnarok to say he's wrong about Taika Waititi generally. Oh, yes, he is. Like, <laughs> so, if anyone, yeah. anyone has any, <laughs> any advice or recommendations, listeners, you guys, on how to get Andy to watch... Um, um, I've forgotten the name of the film. What's it called? Jojo Rabbit. Jojo Rabbit. Jo- Jojo Rabbit. There we go. <laughs> yeah, um, it would be very welcomed because I can't at the moment. I've offered everything that I, is, I can. <laughs> <laughs> I would say Daniel is demonstrably wrong in his belief that The Rise of Skywalker is a good end to the series. He, I don't think he does. No, I don't think I do either. <laughs> Have you changed your mind? Yeah. So what, what was the other one of your six then? Rogue One? Three originals, mm-hmm. Rogue One, Force Awakens is a bit more divisive, but for the way it made me feel and many others feel at the time, soft reset nostalgia fest that it was intended to be, it absolutely did its job. And I would put The Last Jedi in there because I think that's great. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. that that's six easily. On a good day, I can stick Solo in there. On a really good day... I could make a case for The Phantom Menace, but I know that's a little bit wrong. Yeah. <laughs> so wrong. I would only really put Attack of the Clones, Revenge of the Sith, and Rise of Skywalker in the bad category. Mm-hmm. And I know Andy's not here to defend himself, and I feel bad, but there's definitely not only two good ones. I think this is one of those questions, is it right to have pineapple on your pizza? Now, it is if you enjoy it. So the, you don't have any nerd opinions that are demonstrably wrong, as long as you enjoy them, yeah. as long as you love them. Mm. That said, all musical theatre is terrible and everyone who enjoys it is <laughs> a brilliant <laughs> oh. So, so where, where do you stand on the pineapple on a pizza, Ian? Um, Picking a safer topic. I don't like it, but I genuinely believe that. Like, If you enjoy it, you do it. There's yeah. the, I, have, I am not going to be offended based on what you put on, on dough. That's yeah. just mm-hmm. how it works. With uh, apologies to our long-running listener who listens while running long runs, Jenny Winter, who Wait. does a weekly musical theatre cabaret. We don't need it. We're sorry. <laughs> he does. Yeah, sorry, Jenny. <laughs> so people are entitled to have their wrong opinions until it comes to nerd court, and then we have the final verdict on either they're <laughs> mm-hmm. wrong or not. And obviously, and I know this wasn't clear cut at the time, but John is clearly wrong about Armageddon. <laughs> And Hazel is clearly wrong about every horror film ever made. (laughs) Well, I've not seen them, so, you know. (laughs) Is there a horror film that you've enjoyed? Yes, there is a few, actually. Uh, I really like The Shining. Um, Mm -hmm. I have run out of horror films. (laughs) I I also loved uh, Quiet Place as well, more recently. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's great. 
there's a few sort of haunted house films that I have watched and enjoyed over the years. And I think it's, it was just a case of I didn't like jumping out of my socks in the theatre. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't like a jump scare. But no, apart from that, I will, I will watch a good horror film because I think they're mostly they have incredibly good plots. The other aspect of this question is if you're wrong... Are you allowed to change your mind? Because I remember hating Lost in Translation for years and years. Mm. I thought it was the most boring mm. film ever. And then I rewatched it a couple of months ago and I love it now. Mm. Yeah, I think it's the sign of an open mind and in, an intelligent response to a thing is to change your mind when you mm. see it again. I remember our episode about Joker. And mm. at the start of that episode, uh, Ian McLaughlin <laughs> and Hazel were on completely polar opposites on how they viewed the film. but. I think maybe Ian found more of a compromise by the end of that episode, <laughs> but they they seem to end. I don't think end. he did. I don't know. I think he, he, I think he was being. They nice. seem to respect each other's opinions more by the end of it than perhaps they did at the start of the conversation. Uh, nah. <laughs> Here's one for you. What do you think is the worst film you enjoy? Ooh, Blues Brothers 2000. <laughs> Ooh, I cannot say it is a good film at all but that soundtrack and the music they've got mm-hmm. for it and the musicians they get for it i cannot hate or dislike that film just for that scene where they get bb king and bo diddley and clarence clemens and isaac hayes and steve winwood and two dozen other great rhythm and blues musicians just to play a song for five minutes i i can't hate that film even though everybody says it's one of the worst there's ever been <laughs> yeah it's, it's a terrible <laughs> film but it's a great music concert mm. I'll also go to bat for the recent Lone Ranger film purely for the runaway train sequence at the end. Mm. There's two hours of rubbish and awful treatment of indigenous people before that, but it's got one of the great set pieces of the past 20 years at the end of it. I only got about 10 minutes into that one before giving up. You can just watch the last half an hour and you'll get all the good bits. It's the only point where it becomes the film you expected it to be. Yeah. This is not like hugely contentious, but I think... Zack Snyder's Superman Man of Steel isn't terrible. Well, yeah, like, you're wrong, it, Ian. Yeah. <laughs> you sit there in your wrongness and you be wrong, to quote Jed Bartlett. It, it, and I'll tell you why. Ian, well, just, I, think, I, think I think your signal's breaking up. It sounded like you said you, you didn't think Man of Steel was oh, terrible. I wish this was a visual podcast because Ian and I are actually waving our fingers at each other. <laughs> Feel free. Very briefly. Everyone seems to allow like dozens of different versions of Batman, but you change Superman even a little and people revile against it. And I think it's a little unfair. And I also think there's a lot of interesting takes in that film. Like we've seen Krypton be destroyed before. We've never seen, you know, Superman's dad, Jor-El, being a kung fu space wizard on a flying <laughs> dragon. And that to be honest, was quite good. I did like that I'm bit. there for that. It's a real oddity of a film, but it's visually interesting i think it's Zack snyder's best film Mm. i know that's for some that's not a hugely high bar there's a lot more going on in that than i think it's given credit for the character problem uh, that i had was not superman i I do think henry cavill um is a very good actor and he just maybe hasn't been given the material that he deserves yet the main problem i had with that film in terms of character was general zod General Zod is this amazing pantomime villain played by Terrence Stamp in Superman 2. I love him. He's kind of got that balance of being really, really scary, but also like a pantomime villain as well. Whereas in Man of Steel, he was just a boring twat. 
There is no gravitas. There, there is nothing. Like I will not kneel before you because you are a twat. <laughs> Which is a line I believe they cut. Yeah. <laughs> it's going to be in the Snyder cut. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, was he Michael Shannon? Is it? Yeah. I think you're doing him a disservice. Like I, I think he's an oddly stoic villain in that. They're playing it military, and I think that's why it's different to Christopher Reeve's Superman. I think you've been unkind to the character of General Zod Hazelark because I think the reason that it is such a boring, dull character is that Michael Shannon is a terrible, boring, dull actor. If you can <laughs> name me one thing that Michael Shannon's in where he's entertaining, where he's not just a, a dull, blank slate. It's like if you, if you took Tommy Lee Jones and removed all emotion. Uh, Revolutionary Road. Shape of Water. Boardwalk Empire. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. He's the best thing in Pearl Harbor. It's the best thing in Pearl Harbor. That's like mm. <laughs> That's like saying flushing the toilet's the best thing about having a shit, isn't it? Really? It's still not a Ooh. It's a highlight, but it's still not You see, I think your Michael Shannon hate is just because you're scared of people with very angular heads. <laughs> <laughs> he does look like a robot. He does. I mean he could play quite him without the makeup on. <laughs> Right, here's one for you. Uh, Mel Brooks's Dracula Dead and Loving It is better than Francis Ford Coppola's Bram Stoker's Dracula. <laughs> Demonstrably. Because <laughs> the latter is one of the worst things that has ever been committed to any form of media in the history of civilization and should be burnt and all evidence and memory of it wiped. Okay, I think we've found a winner to the question what opinions <laughs> do you have that are demonstrably wrong. The only thing even <laughs> vaguely redeemable is the fact that Gary Oldman looks slightly like Geddy Lee from Rush in one scene. That's it. <laughs> okay, I, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say a statement about that film which you will find it impossible to disagree with. <laughs> Are you ready? No. Mm-hmm. <laughs> the song by Annie Lennox, Sympathy for the Vampire, is brilliant. It mu- you must agree. <laughs> it's a fantastic song. <laughs> It was a bit where like three sexy lady vampires turn up at once for Keanu Reeves, and you know when you were thirteen and fourteen, I enjoyed that scene on VHS. <laughs> Not enjoyed, <laughs> it's a, but it's like enjoyed is an interesting euphemism. <laughs> it is a beautiful and stylistically brave film. Mm. I'm a big fan of it. You do, you Ian. <laughs> John was doing himself. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> to say Dracula dead and loving it, which is probably not—is it the worst Mel Brooks film? I've got a lot of affection for it. I cannot insult you for enjoying that film because I can assume that it holds a special place in your heart (laughs) from when you were a child and enjoyed simple things. (laughs) (laughs) Could anybody support me in an argument that John's undying love of all Nicolas Cage films could potentially (gasps) be wrong in some degree? (laughs) I knew we'd hit Mandy sooner or later. That that was the obvious thing to go (laughs) for with John. Has anyone else here seen Mandy? I've made a point of not seeing it because I, <laughs> I, I prefer my imaginary impression of it instead of actually seeing it. Have I recounted my Nicolas Cage, Keanu Reeves theory on the podcast? No. No. Okay, Nicolas Cage and Keanu Reeves are the opposite actor. You could replace either of them with the other in a film and it'd be completely different but still brilliant. Mm. Now, I think this comes down to the process by which you film these two. So Keanu Reeves, you just stand in front of a green screen and he reads from a teleprompter. Whereas Nicolas Cage, you don't give a script, you just give clothes and follow him around with a camera. And so there are different, <laughs> sp- different ends of the acting spectrum, but both produce amazing results. See, my interpretation of that is that Nicolas Cage is the most over-the-top actor and uh, Keanu Reeves is the most wooden actor. Yeah, 
Nick Cage was the Wicker Man and Keanu Reeves is the Wooden Man. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, if they wanted to do a cheaper remake of the Wicker Man, they could have just thrown a match at Keanu Reeves and the wood would have gone up. But I still love him. I st- I think Keanu Reeves is absolutely brilliant at what he does. Mm. Um, so I just feel I feel mean calling him wooden. But then again, have you watched Speed recently? <laughs> yeah, I mean it's a great film, but he's not great. Like his recreation as an action star is phenomenal, and he is John Wick. You know, he just embodies John Wick. But we all need to take a moment to imagine Nicolas Cage in The Matrix. Oh my that god! That would have been a phenomenal, <laughs> phenomenal thing. Keanu Reeves in Leaving Las Vegas may not have worked. <laughs> yeah, I, I, that would be terrible. That might be stretching but it. I would like quite like to see John Travolta's impression of Keanu Reeves for Face Off. <laughs> I'm trying to think if I have any demonstrably wrong opinions, but in my head, they're probably not. <laughs> I don't know. How long have we got? <laughs> so that brings us to the end of another Nerdfest episode. Thank you so, so much for listening. Uh, you can find us on social media. We're at Nerdfest UK on Twitter and Facebook. Um, and if you're able to, it would be awesome if you could leave us a little review wherever you listen to your podcasts. And if you do that, John has a very, very special reward for you. Yes, I will make a biopic of you so good that Disney Plus think they'll be able to charge $30 extra for it. (laughs) (laughs) We'll be back in a couple of weeks with some more recommendations. Until then, you've been listening to... A man who would definitely have gone to see Stillwater on tour. A man on a German spaceship. A man who died halfway through recording this podcast. Oh, you fucker. (laughs) Can I do mine? (laughs) A sex doll who replaced John Farthing after he died halfway through recording this episode. (laughs) (laughs) And I'm Alan Smithy. We'll see you next time. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. We could record a new Hamilton section now if you prefer. <laughs> <laughs> we don't have to. It's okay. Well, if we do the question, what did you geeks have terrible taste about, then Hamilton surely come up. <gasps> <gasps> Shame. <laughs>